0: Welcome everybody. I'm Israel Ortiz, Program Manager at Health Teamworks. We are very excited to launch our Health Teamworks chat, conversations on how to make healthcare work podcast. Our first episode is about patient trust and we are privileged to start the series up with our very own practice facilitators Katie Ebinger, Angie Schildenberg and Diane Carwell. Please enjoy this episode. Katie, it's all yours.
1: Thanks, Israel. Welcome. Uh, my name is Katie Ebinger, and I'm a facilitator with Health Teamworks. And I'm here with two of my colleagues today to talk about something that's really foundational to quality care, patient outcomes, and provider satisfaction, and that's patient trust. Uh, what does it look like? Why is it important? And what part of the responsibility for the growing distrust do we take on as a healthcare system and as providers? So like I said, I'm here with my colleagues at Health Teamworks and Diane and Angie. Why don't you two start us off by, well, first giving us um, a bit of an introduction into who you are, uh, what perspectives you bring to this conversation today and what patient trust means to you? So Diane, do you wanna get us started?
2: Great. Thanks, Katie. So I'm Diane Cardwell. I am a practice facilitator with Health Teamworks as well. And my background is as a nurse practitioner PA, and I spent 18 years working in primary care. So kind of bring the perspective both as a patient, a patient advocate for my parents, but also as a provider, kind of sitting on that side of the desk as well. Um, so, yeah, I look forward to the conversation about building trust because I agree with Katie. This is so foundational to effective and quality patient care. Um, and certainly coming on the heels of the pandemic and being sa- science being challenged to the extent it is, I think it's a great topic for today. So, Angie, I'll let you do an introduction.
3: Great. Thanks, Diane. I, too, am a, a practice facilitator with Health TeamWorks. And as a mental health practitioner, my background and perspective of patient trust and how to build trust comes from my experience in providing community-based mental health services and in working in integrated uh, integrated behavioral health and primary care clinic for many years.
1: Great. Thank you. Um, and again, my name is Katie. Um, my background is in social work and public health. And Um, Prior to becoming a facilitator at Health Teamworks, um, I had the opportunity to work with patients, but also um, professionals in the health and social services field, um, working on how can we support them so that they can show up as their best selves for the people that they serve. Diane, you mentioned this as well, and we each sort of bring those lived experiences as a patient into these kind of conversations. And I think for me, when I talk about patient trust, um, my most salient perspective is probably my, being a patient myself, um, having gone through some pretty significant medical trauma over the last few years. Um, so to me, really patient trust um, is all about um, the ability to be honest and vulnerable with your provider and that actual real human connection between the patient and the provider. And that really brings me to this next piece that I wanted to talk with you about um, to get us sort of started in this conversation. And that's what builds trust from your view of the world. Um, and I can start us off because I think for me, in um, again, coming from this sort of patient perspective, it can really best be described through this really dichotomous experience that I've had. Um, after being diagnosed with um, a spinal tumor, I was shopping around, so to speak, with a neurosur- for neurosurgeons. And, um, you know, I was in pain and I was scared. And um, whenever I would start giving the history of this experience to them, I would start to cry. And, you know, nine times out of ten, um, the neurosurgeon would just continue on as normal with the appointment. Um, sometimes they wouldn't even look up at me. Um, but there was one who he stopped and he looked me in the eyes and he just said, Katie, I have five daughters. And when I look at you, I see them and I want to do what I can to help you. And he wasn't promising me the world or some magical cure. Um, and I it's not like I knew his skills were significantly better than others, but he was showing me this common humanity and that he saw me as more than what was written in my chart. And so, um, from my perspective, um, building patient trust is really making that human connection, but Diane, I know that you mentioned you have been, you bring this amazingly strong background as a provider yourself. And I would just love to hear from you from sort of that side, um, of this, what you feel like builds trust.
2: Katie, that is such a great story of that connection with humanity. And I think it brings to mind the reality that patients are the owner and the expert of their own experience and the ability to recognize that as a provider and as a human being to me is a foundation in building that trust. You know, I think of sometimes the logistics of just making sure you make eye contact making sure you see and hear what their story is from the patient view. And that's, that's in the shadow of, we know that providers interrupt patients in 18 to 23 seconds from when they start talking. And we also know that providers are many times still on the hamster wheel of maybe they only have five or 10 minutes to see that patient. And so when I talk about the need to take the time to make that connection. I always somewhat say tongue in cheek because I also know there's a lot of outside drivers that impact or providers feel impact the ability to to create that relationship. That said, I also know we're living in a time where we're experiencing significant burnout among providers and staff. And I feel a key part of that burnout is the gaps in feeling they have the time to make that connection. And to build that trust, you know, when I talk with providers, I also remind them once you have that trusting relationship with the patient where you can trust that they're going to bring accurate information and an accurate story and you're going to respect them and listen to it, you can be much more efficient in how you manage their care. So it really is sometimes this double edged sword of making sure you take the time to make that connection. And then what it feels on the other side as a patient and knowing how feeling respected providers that take the time to make eye contact and to listen to what you have to say and to value what you have to say, honestly, doesn't take that much more time than it does to interrupt them and try to guide their conversation. And so I think it's something really important for healthcare care uh, providers to, to pay attention to. You know, my experience is primarily in the clinical world. So, Andrea, I'd love to hear your perspective on what it looks like in that mental health world of building trust.
3: Yeah. You know, and again, from from my background, I think um, what builds trust from my point of view and experience um, really has been, I, I was fortunate enough to um, to be a part of the implementation of peer support specialists into an integrated clinic. In having peer support specialists with lived experience, you know, who have been trained to support those impacted with mental illness and traumas and substance use, you know, it, it's it's really an expertise that professional training can't replicate. And, you know, just, you know, Diane, you talked about the, the time it takes and the gaps um, in the time to build that trust. That you know, having peer support specialist um, was very eye opening for me because that role that a peer support specialist can play really does kind of fill that gap. You know, attending appointments, helping them prepare for appointments, and then after the appointment, answering questions, um, clarifying things, but even role modeling, um, helping patients find their voice. You know, to ask questions and. You know, I think it's just as important for providers to, you know, ask questions to seek and understand, um, you know, where they're coming from and maybe what their home environment looks like. I, I think often patients go to the doctor and, you know, they get a script and they want to go home and feel better, but we don't ever think about what so many patients face as far as challenge, challenges and barriers. To simply fill a prescription, and um, so again, my perspective and what I saw um, in that setting was just how vital the role of a peer support specialist brought to our clinic as far as building relationships and trust and and you know finding helping patients find their voice to advocate and ask questions and ensuring that they were involved as much as possible when it came to you know, decision-making
2: and communicating. Well, Angie, you bring up a really good point about that uh, ability to relate. And sometimes it isn't even the front desk or the clinical staff or the provider, but that peer person who has had shared experiences. And I think that applies kind of across the continuum of clinical care, mental health care, substance abuse care, uh, so it's a really good consideration to think about as we look at our practice setting.
3: Well, and, you know, I, I, and I think, you know, having um, that advocate and support, it, it builds trust, you know, and which enhances engagement. And with enhanced engagement comes that kind of empowerment um, know and when a patient feels empowered it provides the confidence needed to really take an active role um you know to meeting their health goals and to understanding and i i I think you know engagement is just a huge piece and diane you said it i mean from the minute you walk into your door and me personally going to my doctor how i'm treated at the front desk and you know that genuine kind of welcome and listening it all kind of starts there and uh, again just Again, my experience and what I—it was just humbling to, you know, I guess get a better perspective. I, I think peer support specialists bring, not so much even to patients, but to care teams and and to providers um, to kind of fill those gaps of misunderstandings or, um, you know, needing clarification. Uh, and in the end, really does save time for everybody. And um, you know, we provide care, but it's it's how do you the care has to be um, active, like actively engaged, and um, that was something that I don't know. Always, uh, just that extra piece and time um, provided by that specific role uh, um, was amazing. I, I think peer support specialists are a specialist in their own way, um, as far as you know, engagement and understanding that perception that a patient. Um, has to that really relatable kind of what you said, Diane, is being able to relate on a level that really nobody else can to engage patients.
1: Yeah. And I just think you, you bring such rich experience um, when we talk about this, Angie, because I think there is a really important note when we talk about behavioral health and trust, because um, like you had said, there, people are afraid that if they share that part of them to their provider, maybe they won't be understood or they'll be looked at differently or there's gonna be a stigma um, placed um, towards them. So um, thank you for sharing that perspective. I think it's something really important that we have to keep in mind. Um, But we've touched on some of those things that build trust, Um, but I'm wondering if um, we can touch on maybe those things that interfere with building or maintaining those kinds of trusting relationships that we just described.
2: Well, I can take that one too, Katie, because, um, you know, I talked a little bit about the time factor, taking the time to make the human connection with patients. Many times when I talk to providers and staff, they will talk about time being their biggest obstacle. And while that may be, I also know staff and providers that in 10 seconds or less can create a connection. So again, making sure you don't let time be the obstacle. I also think it is important as a healthcare provider, healthcare staff, front office, uh, even the phone, to think about your experience and what you're bringing to your day. And I think we have to respect that there are times in healthcare, while it's an advantage to be able to put whatever burdens you're carrying on the table, or in the on the shelf, so that you can bring your best self forward for the patient. So there's also times when you need to be able to hand off. And I think this reflects to building that trusting relationship with coworkers. And if you don't have that, how that can be an obstacle to creating a trusting relationship with patients. And so really thinking about even practicing what we want to do with our coworkers, And can we trust to hand off to co workers, And I can remember specifically an example. You know, we had a really busy family medicine practice, and I had had a really tough few days with some personal issues with my teenage sons. And I just didn't, I saw on the schedule a really complex patient, and I just did not have the capacity to be there 100% for that patient. And I asked a colleague, I was like, would you mind seeing this patient today? I just, they're very complex. And they took the patient for me. And so I think that ability to be able to ask when you need to hand off to make sure the patient's needs are met and what that looks like in a trusting work relationship is also an important consideration. So I think if you don't have that trusting work relationship, that can definitely interfere with trusting relationships with the patient's. I think also uh, a lot of times we talk about EHRs interfering with the relationship. I've seen really good use of EHRs and technology and I've seen really poor. But again, I think it goes back to making it a priority to value the voice of the patient as an expert of their own experience and thinking about your perspective in advance to make sure those things aren't an obstacle. Um, Because again, when you take the time you're much more efficient in the long run. And I kind of see it as an investment, uh, making it a priority, take that take that time to build the relationship. Angie, any thoughts on that? Uh, you know, I always think yeah. in mental health, they have many times 40, 45 minute appointments where in primary care, you might have 10 at the most 20 minute yeah. appointments. Um, any comments on that? You know, you of- know yeah.
3: I I think as far as what interferes with with trust, um, specific to um behavioral and mental health, is is truly this the stigma and the misconceptions of mental illness um, have and they, and they can well they continue to impact patient trust. You know, and understanding that so often um, patients have been through so much uh, traumas and med regimens. I mean, mental illness is a difficult you know diagnose and to treat Uh, you know it takes sometimes years you know to come up with the right regimens of medicines that work and that trial and error and, and hurry up and hope this med works i mean that's it's traumatizing it's tiring and you know and i and i think um oftentimes you know patients with a laundry list of psychotropic meds um and you know antidepressants whatever it's I'm sure it's intimidating for primary care providers to look at that list and then look at the patient and go, oh my gosh, you know, like, do I wanna add another med to this list? But, you know, ask the patient, you know, and and I think oftentimes patients um, who are impacted and inflicted with mental illness, they're 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 just so used to just going with the flow and doing you know they want to do the right thing they want to give meds the time that they need and 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 that's painful sometimes because it takes a while and um but it's intimidating and uh you know i've had clients share that as soon as they saw my diagnosis and my list of meds they suddenly started talking louder and slower like i wasn't you know i wasn't uh intelligent enough to understand what they're saying and so often they you know it's then that sets the tone and then that sets the trust like you know i can tell this provider is looking at me differently and um but you know asking uh patients sometimes like or even just admitting you know these are a lot of meds how are they working and I'm sure you know. Uh, patients will say, "Hey, it's taken me 15 years to get here, and this is a wonderful regimen. Uh, my mental health is good. I'm really ready to focus on my weight." Or, um, you know, I'm borderline with diabetes. Again, something that comes, you know, so often with psychotropic medicines is, you know, weight gain and, um, you know, some of the side effects with that. But again, I think it takes so long. To get to the right place um, to really focus on physical health, I, I and again my background in, in in working in an integrated behavioral health and primary care setting um, was oftentimes by the time we saw patients, they have um, they had not that they purposely ignored physical things, but it was it's so much to um, try to juggle all at once. So I think you know. Physically or you know mentally having the stability to better understand their body and how it how it's reacting and what are some of the side effects um, and again uh, the peer support specialist was another huge um, a piece of the care team and, and I think that's you know we include the patient should be at the center um, of a care you know the care plan and making those decisions um, but. Um, yeah i i I, again i i just think you know the stigma and misconceptions and the kind of um intimidation um you know that that can bring to providers and um and then also putting the patient in the middle if you know they have a psychiatrist that's prescribing a low dose maybe um blood pressure med for anxiety and then they go to the medical provider, why are you on this? And it's, you know, they're, they're always in the middle and they want to do well and they want to do, you know, things as prescribed, but then oftentimes they fill in the middle and who do I listen to, who do I trust, you know? And um, yeah, so communication and really integration and, and, and communicating with providers outside of your system or outside of your clinic um, is huge. Uh, It takes a village, but we, I think, too, all have to be on the same page.
2: Um, You know, Angie, you bring up some really good points, and I want to call out the first one, which was that judgment, patients not being judged. And I think that applies to not only mental health or substance abuse stigma, but also to sometimes patients who are doing alternative therapies and the ability to create a safe environment where you're not going to judge them for what they're trying or what they're wanting to do. And I think also that the value, if we talk about building trust, that value of consistent messaging, you know, yes. and I think that's true, not even across providers, but even within like a primary care team. If we're sending a consistent message from the front desk to the staff, to the provider, that's so valuable in building trust versus they're hearing two or three different things, much less across providers, but within even an internal team. Such an important part and many times an area where trust breakdown can occur. I think that said, with so much burnout happening in primary care, in mental health support settings right now, it makes it difficult sometimes to even think about these things because we all know that our healthcare system has been stressed to the max, Um, but recognizing burnout and Katie, I know that's your area of expertise. So I'll kind of hand off to you to talk about that piece of it.
1: Oh, no, well, thanks. And Angie, I kept also thinking as you were talking about, um, you know, these um, sometimes patients feel like their providers might be judging them or they're having these negative interactions where maybe um, they're not feeling like the compassion is there. Um, And like you mentioned, Diane, this is um, I'm a little biased in, in talking about this because it's um, something I'm personally interested in, but um, I think we would be remiss to not explicitly mention things like compassion fatigue. Um, You know, I come from this space where probably with very rare exceptions, um, we're all compassionate people at our baseline. Um, but things happen along the way. Like we've all mentioned in this, that, you know, sort of muddy those, um, those waters in terms of our ability to show up as our best selves, whether that's, um, you know, constantly witnessing others people's suffering and not caring for yourself or, um, Struggling with a lack of support or time or resources to do what you became a provider to do in the first place. Um, There are so many reasons and sources that drain providers and keep them from showing up um, in a compassionate way for every patient. And patients aren't immune to that. Um, They see that um, the patient suffers, the patient interaction suffers, and we can't expect trust in those situations. Um, so patients probably aren't as likely to be honest when say they're not taking their medication, or maybe they have a a mental health diagnosis that they don't want to bring up, um, for fear of, um, having that lack of compassion. And, um, it really creates this vicious cycle because, um, patient distrust is both a symptom and a known contributor to provider dissatisfaction or burnout or fatigue or whatever you want to call it. Um, And that actually sort of transitions nicely into this um, really next piece of this puzzle, and that's the symptoms of patient distrust. Um, We've mentioned some of them already, but I'm curious um, what you both are seeing in terms of consequences of loss of trust.
2: Well, I'll go first with that, Katie, um, because I think, you know, when I'm in a clinical practice and I was guilty of this myself as a provider, trying to figure out why patients didn't. Um, follow the recommendations we had talked about and even semi-agreed upon. And again, I always think if I could go back now after doing 10 years of this work, I would be so much better in primary care because I've learned so much along the way, mostly from primary care practices that I've worked with. But again, when you think about that patient who comes in every month or even every few weeks and didn't follow, didn't get the prescription filled, didn't follow any of the agreed upon plan, And so I think that kind of noncompliance, which I use that term with quote marks because I don't like the term, but that piece of um, noncompliance, I think, is a symptom of lack of trust. So there's something there, some piece of the story that we don't know, some lack of bidirectional trust that I encourage practices to think about. I think certainly what we're seeing nationally with the questioning of science and um, just really struggling to understand that and the, the whole COVID vaccine issue and, and challenging that, I think is a has become a very public symptom of lack of trust in our healthcare system and our healthcare delivery model. So I think looking at some of those both on a one-on-one level, but also on a national public health level, we have to look at those uh, for consideration and exploration. You know, we're going to learn so much as we study what has happened the last few years. So, yeah, I think those are two things that come to mind my mind. Angie, any comments on that?
3: Well, I I think again, I think um, some of the symptoms are the stigma. Um, uh, of seeking help, you know, especially during the pandemic, I, I think, you know, there are people that are experiencing anxiety and depression at levels that maybe they've never experienced, um, or have and have had it uh, under control for years, and you know, now everything's bubbling up to a point that they're, it's, um, you know, it's it's, it's very, it's a fearful place to be, um, but again, you know, I think. We're missing folks that are too fearful to, to be seen or to talk about this anxiety and depression, maybe that, you know, um, the pandemic and everything that came with it um, has triggered. And so, you know, we have to be open and ready to talk about it. And um, and nobody should feel, you know, the shame or the blame that they've done anything Um, wrong, um, considering where we are in the world, and we just need to talk about it. And, you know, and providers, you know, Diane, I, I think of, you know, the past two years of working, you know, in integrated or in primary care settings, just the amount of stress and fatigue that everybody is in, in, um, you know, reaction, because that's what we've had to do for the last two years, is react to, you know, what, what, what's going to happen today and quickly, you know realigned workflows and and it's just it's affecting everybody and it's and it's not going to go away and how it has affected you know everyone um, will be with us for years and so i think to engage and to build trust we just um you know we still got to be open to to talk openly and share with our peers with our internal teams um when we have bad days and um, give ourselves some grace but but know together, you know, we can, we can all feel better and get better, but, you know, trust and, and sharing, I think is something we all have to do. That's such a good point.
1: And I think that sums up, um, that sums up our conversation so well, because um, you brought in that. So now what kind of thing, what can we do? Um, we know that there are these things that can build trust and these things that are stopping us from doing that. Um, but where do we go from here now? Um, and a big part of that, like you mentioned, Angie, is trust and trusting your patients, uh, making sure that they feel that their concerns are taken seriously and believed by their providers, um, and meeting them where they're at as experts of their own experience, as you um, so eloquently said, Diane. And that takes time, and it takes a, a shift in mindset from a how do I get this person to do what I want them to do to How do I get this person to do what they want to do by building on self-knowledge and psychological safety? Um, I think a big piece of this next step is going to be implicit bias and stigma and cultural competency. Um, We need to make those things a priority and we need to really be making concerted efforts to support an inclusive and diverse workforce, like using peer support specialists. Um, And... I think at baseline making pay, trust building an explicit part of medical education. Um, so, you, so that everybody knows that in order for us to really help patients, we need to approach our interactions as opportunities for exploration, as opportunities for shared decision-making um, rather than that sort of patriarchal kind of relationship that sometimes comes into play. Um, and then also just continuously preventing and mitigating that burnout, um, having an organizational commitments to create a culture that values and protects the well-being of their providers and staff so that they can show up as their best selves for their patients and create that trusting interaction and relationship. And those are just a few of the things that um, that we can sort of take and run with or ideas that have come up in other conversations. And um, are there any other sort of
2: um,
1: where do we go from here now that you, um, Angie or Diane, have
2: to add? You know, Katie, I think you summarized it really well. I think one of the first steps is really recognizing those potential symptoms. And so if you have patients that you think of as non-compliant or even no show patients, what are the barriers to trust? Can interfere with that and identifying some concrete action steps that, that you can do with that, whether it's a follow-up phone call or the next visit. Um, but again, I think it's that first step of looking in the mirror and recognizing those potential symptoms.
3: Yeah, I, I really don't, I think you both um summarized it really well. I don't, I don't have anything to add other than, yeah, it's kind of back to basics, right? Just genuine listening and um.
1: Yeah, to build trust. Great. Well, um, we've reached our time today I'm I'm sure we went well over our time, but um, this was, as it always is with you two, um, just such a great conversation and one that needs to be happening at all levels and facets of the healthcare system. Um, So thank you both for bringing your experiences and your perspectives. Um, I know I've learned a lot and I hope that our listeners did as well. And we look forward to engaging in more of these kinds of conversations around topics that are impacting health and healthcare moving forward. So stay tuned for our April podcast.
2: And thanks for listening.
3: Thank you, Katie. Thank you, Diane.
2: Yep. Thanks, everybody. Angie, Katie. This has been fun. Always a great conversation.
0: Thank you for listening today. I hope you enjoyed the episode and stay tuned. Every month, we will release a new episode where we will be having conversations with experts in the field on how to make healthcare work. If you would like to suggest topics for our podcast, please reach us at solutions at healthteamworks.org. To learn more about Health Teamworks, please visit healthteamworks.org and follow us on social media. Health Teamworks Chat Conversations on How to Make Healthcare Work is a production of Health Teamworks. For more future episodes, please visit Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.